This is Michael Easley in Context. This is one of the fascinating parts of our culture as we continue to invent religions. We continue to come up with new ways and new views of God and it's really quite interesting to read how people invent religions all the time. You didn't invent this religion, Christ found you. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Every person asks, does God hear our prayer? Does God answer our prayer? Does God listen to all the prayers of all the people? If you remember the scene from Bruce Almighty, where he becomes God, as it were, all the prayers come in to him, and he has them in post-its that overwhelm him. And then, of course, they come in through email, and he answers them all yes. Uh, Ludicrous, but illustrative of how in the world does the sovereign hear our prayers? Number one, we know that God is omniscient omnipresent, omnipotent, meaning he is everywhere, he is all-powerful, he knows all. He is so far beyond our human comprehension, we have a God who hears. One of the fascinating parts of the psalm literature is how often these are prayers. In fact, in a sense, they're all prayers. They're all petitions of some kind. Some are complaints, some are laments, some are uh, some are, some are praise psalms, some are thankful psalms. Some of the psalms that were written were songs for, and the, we might say, the inauguration of a king. Well, we have been looking at Psalm 65, Living Life from the Heart, a series that was originally presented at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. Now, Psalm 65 is a prayer, and the first portion of the psalm, the psalmist is stressing that God hears, forgives, and blesses the worshiper. Now, let's think about our own prayers. Too often, we have a very specific thing we're asking God to do. And when he doesn't check the box and answer it the way we pray, does that mean God is not hearing or listening or answering? Or perhaps are we praying in the wrong fashion? Let's continue the program and see what kind of help we get from the psalmist. There's three aspects of Yahweh's character in these first four verses. Number one, he hears prayer. Calvin says, God can no more divest himself of the attribute of hearing prayer than he can of being. The psalmist underscores this. God hears our prayer. Look at it. There will be silence before you in Zion and silence before you and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer. To you all men come. The idea that every time we pray he hears. Now there's always this question, does God hear the prayer of the non-believer? Well that's not the point of this psalm. The point of this psalm is everyone's going to pray. And I think there's an eschatological picture here. Because obviously the evil don't pray. Men who hate Yahweh don't pray. Men who hate Yahweh Elohim's people certainly don't pray. But it says all men. I don't think we can expunge this one with a grammatical issue. I think he's saying there are those who pray to me in Zion the way I prescribed the vow, and everybody else is going to pray too. And eventually they will. Marvin Tate says there can be little doubt. All flesh in the context of the psalm refers to all mankind. The coming of all flesh to God may well be read with an eschatological thrust. In other words, in that end, in that final day, all men will acknowledge him. All men will bow, some willingly and some unwillingly. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. 
because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. When I was um, recovering after my second surgery, I was supposed to walk every day. And it was, um, I shared with someone this morning, it was sharing with me that she slipped on black ice and broke her ankles. And uh, it's been a long, long, hard recovery. After my back surgery, I was supposed to walk, and there was ice and snow in Illinois at that time. And I would take my son Devin with me, and I said, Devin, if you fall and I fall, we're both in big trouble. And we would just kind of scooch along these roads going, this is really stupid. I just had back surgery and I'm walking on ice. What is wrong with this equation? And um, so as I walked, I tried to walk most days, I would memorize scripture. And I memorized Psalm 116. And I don't know how you memorize, but I say each word of the verse. I say, I love the Lord, because he hears my voice, my supplications. I love the Lord because he hears. I love the Lord. And I go through, that's the way I do it. So, you know, halfway through the psalm, I got the first few verses down cold. The last ones I always forget. Maybe I should memorize them backwards. But um, <laughs> as I memorize this psalm, the first two verses are the ones that just overwhelm me. The psalmist is saying, God always hears my prayer. That's what he's saying in Psalm 65. What he says in Psalm 116 is, just because he hears me, that should be a good enough reason for me to pray. I mean, think of this. My prayers are typically because I want God to do something. Now, I'm not trying to puppet him in reverse. If I pray enough, Lord, will you come through for me? If I learn the lesson of pain, will you take it away? That's the way my brain works. Okay, we have this test, Lord, and you want me to learn certain lessons in this test. Hurry up and learn me, Lord. <laughs> I want to be done with this test. I'll learn it. Just teach it to me. I don't like this in-between stuff. Just give me the goods. And he just seems to just smile. Doesn't work that way, right? The older I get, the more complicated the answers seem to come. But the older I get, I should be wiser because God has been with me. And so David says, I'm going to pray just because I know he hears me. It's pretty amazing. Number one, he hears our prayer. Number two, he forgives sin in verse three. The term forgive here is a different word. It's not the word that you'd think. It's the, who knows what Yom Kippur means? Day of atonement. Day is Yom Atonement. What does atonement mean? Atone. What does it mean to be a sins atoned for? If to pay for and, and, uh, and forgiven are in there, but the word means to cover. Did anyone say that? I didn't hear it. Okay, here's some chocolate anyway. Wake up. Um, so, so it means to cover. The first time the word is used is in Genesis when uh, Noah builds this boat, and what does he do to it? He takes pitch. And he covers it inside and out. And that's the first word occurrence, the way it shows up in, our, in the chronology of the way we have the Bible. So he's covering it over. So the word as it's used in its, in its history means to cover things over. And the atonement is a covering. And so we say God covers our sin. But that doesn't make sense. Because he can't cover it over. It's still there. So the word has a real problem as it's used historically. Um, it probably gets back to someone said the word ransom. Because think of it this way. If, um, 
if I had a, had a, some of you still remember stores where you had credit on your name. I had a friend who had a haberdashery in Nacogdoches, Texas, and he had a little box of three by five cards, and people came in and put $5 Dan, down, and, and Mr. McLean said, thanks. And when they walked out, he pulled out their card, and he wrote $5 in the date and put it back in. He probably had several hundred thousand dollars of accounts receivable in this little box of cards, and he didn't care because he just liked to help people get their clothes. And he had this little box of cards, and people would come in and never say, I, I would be in the store, and they just put five, and he would write it down. And he, you know, what, was, what was Dick McLean saying? I got it covered. I got it covered. I'm not going to expect those people to pay me in full when I put it on that card and said, you could have those clothes, before God, Dick McLean said, I'm just giving it away. They come back, great. They don't, great. I remember asking him about it. He just smiled. He wouldn't talk about it. He wouldn't elaborate on it. But he was covering their debts. So the idea of covering over, I think, is a little bit of a poor rendering. The idea is, I've got it covered I've taken care of that. The mercy seat is called the seat of atonement. It includes the ideas of substitution and redemption that someone else is taking care of it. That's what the word here, he forgives your sin. He atones for it. Number one, he hears prayer. Number two, he forgives sin. Number three, he blesses the one he chooses. Look again at verse 4 of Psalm 65. How blesses the one whom you choose and bring near. To dwell in your courts, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. He hears our prayer, he forgives our sins, and he blesses those he chooses. It is divine choice. It is not man's choice that he researches all religions and decides, oh, I like this one the best. I'll believe in Yahweh, I'll believe in Christ. He chooses us. Verse 4, it says he brings us near. He causes us to dwell. He satisfies us with goodness. I don't know how many of us have wrestled with the idea that God chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.13, that you had no uh, right or merit of your own. You didn't find Jesus. You didn't discover him on your own. It wasn't something that one day you uh, pulled it all together and you said, you know, after my courses at the university about world religion, this is the one I like best. This is one of the fascinating parts of our culture as we continue to invent religions. Uh, we continue to come up with new ways and new views of God. And it's really quite uh, interesting to read how people invent religions all the time. Uh, you didn't invent this religion. Christ found you. He interrupted your life. He came before the foundation of the world and he chose you and me. I don't understand that, but I sure am grateful. Have you ever heard Jay Vernon McGee's illustration? Best one I've ever heard. He said, there's a giant arch, and the arch has chiseled on it, whosoever will. The offer is open. The offer, I believe, is universal. Whosoever will. Whosoever will comes to Christ. If he's lifted up, he's going to draw men to him. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world. I don't understand it all. He chose Israel. He chose you. He chose me. Whosoever will. And someday you say, okay, I trusted Christ. I believed. I walked in aisle. I prayed the prayer. I embraced it. I took it by faith. However we sanction those words. We walk through the arch and we go, we're saved. And then one day somebody tells you about this election predestination stuff. And you go, that, no way. That's wrong. 
That's unfair. God couldn't do that. And you look on the back of the arch, and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, what I think J. Vernon McGee meant by that was election and predestination have no application for the unbeliever. Election and predestination have no application for the unbeliever. Election and predestination only have application for the believer. Because the believer says, oh, I get it now. I didn't find Jesus. Jesus found me. And the Old Testament underscores the same theology. Those who you choose, not who we put forward, who did Israel choose to be their king? They want a king, want to be like other nations. So God puts Saul in front of them. They say he's a head and shoulders above all the rest. And he's an abysmal failure from the beginning. And then God says, I'm going to show him how to do it. Here's the firstborn. Nope, nope. Nope. Any more? Well, there's one little teenager out in the field thinking a sheep. Bring him in here. 16, 17-year-old boy named David. He's the one. Not as the world sees. I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to show you that God's choice is different than man's choice. The ultimate, the ultimate pivot of the choice of God versus the choice of man was the event of Goliath. The Philistine comes out 40 days and 40 nights and says what? Choose a man to fight me. If he wins, we, we, we surrender. If I win, you surrender. Eighty times in the morning and evening, 40 days. Choose a man, choose a man, choose a man. You think Israel's armies heard, who's the choice? The choice is Saul. He's the big one. He's that big guy with the really nice armor. And the really big sword because he's the number one king and he's in a tent and he's scared to death. <laughs> and a snotty-nosed shepherd boy smelling of sheep bringing some cheese and bread comes into the tent and says, I'll do it. Who are these Philistines, uncircumcised Philistines who taunt the armies of the living God? What a, what a depiction, a little runt and a giant. What's the point? Choose, choose, choose. You chose wrong. I chose right. And I'll show you a little boy with a rock will take out a giant. God's choices always dismantle our categories. We're not that good. And so David in the psalm says, whom you choose to be in your courts, who you choose to dwell in your houses. Sorry, I get a little worked up on that one. He hears our prayer. He forgives our sin. And he blesses the ones he chooses. Now there's some profound blessings here. Just these three. To think that God hears my prayer, that God forgives my sin, and God has chosen me. If we stopped there, we'd have enough. When you and I pray glibly and repetitively over a meal, has the sovereign of the universe heard you? When Michael was so kind, as some of you had asked to pray for my back, I sat there reminding myself, the God of the universe is hearing this. When you pray for your son or daughter who does not know the Lord, your grandchildren who have taken choices and turns you don't like, and your loneliness as a widow or widower, and the heartbreak you've experienced, the cancer that you have, the heart troubles that you have, and you pray those glib prayers, you know he hears you? He hears me? Even when I pray poorly he hears me he forgives me 
I know some of you don't sin anymore, but I sin all the time. <laughs> I sin every stinking day. I used to think, I wonder if I could live a day without sin. And then I started setting these goals. Can I, can I live one hour without sin? It's just stupid stuff, but that's how my brain works. Can you live without sin? Can a man live? Can a man be pure before God? Answer, no. But Christ is righteous before God. And Christ doesn't sin. And I'm in Christ. So somehow, in the Holy Spirit's control, I am to be submissive to his will and his word, and I'm not to sin. And then I sin. But he forgives me. How glad I am. You know, as I've gotten older, it's not, I don't act out on sins that often. I don't steal stuff. I don't do stuff. I've never had an affair. I've been faithful to my wife for 28 years. It's not the stuff I do I'm worried about. It's what goes on between the temples and my brain that I'm worried about. It's what I think that annoys me more. How about you? And God, forgive me for my thoughts. And you know what? He does. He forgives. He hears. He's chosen you. Number one, God hears and forgives. Number two, our God is righteous and omnipotent. Verse five, by awesome deeds you answer us. In righteousness, O God of our salvation, you who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea, who established the mountains by his strength, being girded with his might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Let me just show you the parallel there because it's easy to see. The roaring is twice, and the tumult, roaring, roaring, tumult. The sea, the waves, the people. It builds to a little bit of a crescendo. It's not just the roaring of the seas God controls. He even controls the mobs of the people, the roaring of the people. Verse 8, they who dwell in the ends of the earth Stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Number one, our God hears our prayers. Number two, our God is righteous and omnipotent. Righteousness is one of these words that means everything and therefore it means nothing. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean for Yahweh to be righteous? It means that he corrects every injustice. Yahweh corrects every injustice. God is holy. He is ethical. His standards are perfect. He's never capricious. He never acts quickly. There's no knee-jerk response from God. God doesn't get frustrated and destroy a bunch of people one day. God doesn't get, get lonely and tired and angry in the way we think of these terms. God always does the right thing by his ethical and holy standard. Now, when we think of America, and I love my country, uh, perhaps more than I should sometimes. I love America. And when I see America's tumult with their laws, uh, this recent uh, $700 billion rescue, not bailout, rescue plan, um, O.J. Simpson uh, hearing came in, the trial came in yesterday, evidently. And when I see these things debated, I always wonder, what really happened? What's the truth? You ever, you ever wonder, that? what's the truth behind these things? Because we're suspicious by nature, Right? And we know that lawyers are smart and judges are swayed and juries are swayed and we're all a fallen system. Wouldn't it be nice if every single judge was righteous? Just think if every attorney on both sides was righteous. They'd never go to trial. My client did it. What are we going to do? 
Let's just save everybody a lot of trouble. He stole, she did this, he was a murderer, they're wrong, they're guilty, they'll take whatever consequence you give them. We'll just save everybody a lot of time and expense, let the jury go home, let's just save the judicial system a lot of headaches. How many trials should never go to court? Probably all of them. But nobody will admit blame. Nobody will say, I'm wrong, and the law has become our God. It's not... It's not about, understand, if you're in the legal world, it's not about right and wrong. It's about the law. This is a genius concept. It's not about right and wrong. It's not about did he kill this person even though we have a videotape of him doing that. It's not, that's not the issue. The issue is what does the law say? Now listen, this is, this is Greco-Roman Judeo thinking. Because for the Jew, it wasn't how man interpreted the law. It was what did God say? So for the law to judge righteously was to follow the literalness of the law. We get all upset and humored by the rabbis adding laws to the law. No, they did exactly what you're supposed to do. You're not to take the case and say, well, the donkey fell in the ditch and the Sabbath law says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Is that work? (laughs) So they're trying to define very carefully, when does it work on the Sabbath? Because that wasn't specified in the law. And Jesus, of course, comes along and shows them, look, the law wasn't intended to be the God. The law was to show you you couldn't do it. Only I can fulfill the law. The law was a continual reminder of your failure, and David got that. But this corpus of law that he's talking about here is we're not judging as man's interpretation. We're judging against God's law. And this is why he's righteous, because he always does what his law says. He's partial to his own judicial system. We all want the righteous judge. Psalm 145.17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Do we really believe that? When life doesn't go the way I want it to go, is he righteous? The psalmist Hosea asked the question, uh, why do the wicked prosper? Habakkuk, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked succeed? Where are you, God? Act. That's the psalmist lament and question. We have a righteous God. He's not a cold-hearted, clever prosecutor or a cold-hearted, greedy defense attorney. He's a perfect, righteous judge. Let me ask you this. When you pray, would the answer to that prayer glorify and honor God? You see, sometimes my prayers are purely selfish. More often than I'd like to admit, they are very selfish. Even if I'm praying for good things, they can be more about helping me in my life. One of the biggest lessons I ever learned with prayer is it's not, does God answer prayer? It is a relationship that we have with God. Prayer is a relationship, not always a request. And the time you and I spend in prayer is reflective of the kind of a relationship that we have or do not have with Him. As you read the Psalms, and I hope you will continue reading and rereading Psalm 65, read it as a prayer. Stop at places. There is silence before a holy God. It is good to reflect on the words of Scripture, and to know that He hears your prayer every time. As we began in Psalm 116, at the top of the program, 
I love the Lord because he hears my prayer, because he has inclined his ear to me. If God never did anything for you but hear your prayer, would that be a good thing? He's a perfect and righteous judge. He always judges rightly, and he cares for his own. If not in this life, you can be assured in life eternal. This is Michael Easley in Context. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.